Cron Gibson, Things We Don't Talk About in Church. Let me just start briefly with my own story uh, as a way to give us a backdrop, and then I'm going to tell you where we're going. But before I do that, let me pray for us. Father God, you want your people to know freedom. You want us to know the present hope of your son, not just some kind of future hope that when this life ends, pain will end. And so God, as we talk today, as we open your word, as we walk through matters of uh, culture and brokenness, God, I ask that you would be our teacher, Holy Spirit, our guide. Let not my shortcomings, my own weaknesses, doubts, sinfulness hinder anything that you would want to say. I pray for the folks gathered here that what is gold, would you help it to stick, and what is dross, to wash away. Father, the day we live in as we keep hearing the expression of this cultural moment is a moment of grave turmoil, of brokenness, in my mind, of epidemic proportion, but yet you're not surprised. To you, I think it's always been epidemic, Father. And so will you grant us a humility to walk in waters that we are uncomfortable with, that yet you call your people to learn to speak to well and to speak to in a way that brings a true hope into the moment of people's lives. To that end, Father, I pray, use me in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Well, briefly, my own story, what puts me to doing this. I grew up in a bit of a train wreck. Uh, my dad was an alcoholic. My mom was in what we would refer to today as a new age cult. I heard Jesus' name all the time growing up. Dad was a Navy man, you know, middle names, last names, other names, uh, as we went along with it. Dad was um, an alcoholic, agnostic, deacon, Sunday school teacher um, in the local PCUS church where my mom did New Age meditation with the pastor's wife. Um, if you look at my family tree, my generation, and unfortunately my children, and then you go back, you can't find anybody in the family system that I've been able to identify that it wasn't depressed, anxious, or taking early forms of medication like Jim Beam uh, to address their distress um, in this life. Um, I have, I'm a survivor of uh, physical trauma, sexual trauma, emotional trauma, spiritual trauma. I have been through six major depressions in my life. Uh, knock on wood, I figured out what it was on the sixth time when my wife and I were uh, relatively young in our marriage. We were working for Campus Crusade for Christ at Cornell when in God's providence my wheels came off and it was time to hospitalize myself to begin to address what would happen. Uh, they're asking, Greg, can you turn the volume up a little bit? Um, began to address the things that were broken under my own waterline. And as, as I look back, I realize my prayers in the day were God rescue me from this. And as I've grown and matured, my wife says a little bit in 30 years of marriage, I've learned that God saves me not from my story, but with my story for a purpose. And that he saves you with your story for a purpose and he would intersect the goodness of him and the gospel into these places. Uh, today, after my wife and I have planted three churches together, um, I'm a serial entrepreneur, if you think of scratch church planting. And then I, about 10 years ago, I started uh, what I call Hopewell uh, Counseling in Virginia Beach. We're a nonprofit religious 501c counseling center. I have uh, 12 other counselors who work for me now. And what I teach them on a regular basis is gospel integration, 
into everything that we do. You can think of counseling today uh, this way, as you always have theology and psychology. Any given moment, I would argue, in our lives is theological. How I sit on my back porch declares something about what I believe about God. But in, when you enter into the world of counseling, if you think psychology and theology, three basic positions are psychology is the important part, let me help you navigate your mind, and we can stick a verse on it here or there. And unfortunately, that is often where well-intended Christian counselors are because they just are not given theological education. We have people who kind of try to do it side by side, and then we have the, the biblical counselor who often doesn't understand the sciences, the, how the brain actually works, biology, and everything else. I operate out of a grid. I have an MDiv. I'm a teaching elder in the EPC, and I'm a, I have an MA, Marriage and Family Therapy. I'm 20, 21,000 hours into sitting with people in the counseling arena, not counting pastoring at, at churches and over the coffee cup at Starbucks. What I've begun to see across all of these places is that pick your subject and we can look underneath, the, underneath it and ask, what is sitting there? And how does Jesus invite us to go there? And that will ultimately be where I want to go with you. So today I want to give you a gospel-centered, integrated framework to help you better understand yourself better understand the people that you are sitting with that God has called you or invited you to care for with the ultimate goal of preaching the good news of the gospel more potently and pointedly to the hearts of men and women who are deeply struggling today. That's where I hope to go with you. Our Counseling Center's mission is to offer the present hope of Jesus to hurt and wounded people in partnership with the local church because I believe that God has intended the local church and her leadership to be responsible for souls, for the hearts and minds of people. A number of years ago, I was at a giant continuing ed conference on the East Coast that comes every year to the DC area. They have another one out on the West Coast, I wanna say in the LA area. 3,500-ish practitioners, marriage and family therapists, licensed mental health workers, psychologists, etc. And I think it was 2015, and the, the MC made an interesting comment that as a pastor, because that's who I am. I'm a pastor who happens to be clinically trained. I think of my calling as highly skilled discipleship, that as people get the present hope of Jesus in the darkest of places, the gospel becomes actual good news, not hypothetical. But I was listening to this man talk about the place of the counselor, the psychologist, and this is what he said. It used to be that it was the pastors, the rabbis, and the priests at the bedside, at the funeral, visiting the sick in their homes. But now it's us, the counselors, the psychologists. We are now the prophets, the priests, the rabbis. And I, it was so startling to me that he just said it so openly, but it crystallized a thought that we, in a well-intended way, often as clergy, we don't know how to help this person who's struggling with fill in the blank, depression, anxiety, addiction. And often we refer to, a, to the local Christian counselor who is well-intended, but the lack of understanding of how sound theology gospel comes into these rightly diagnosed places often creates a disintegration of faith for God's people. Jesus doesn't touch this part 
of my mind or my heart, Old Testament, New Testament language. I want to tell you that the scriptures declare the glory of God in a way that yes, he does, and you don't need to be afraid of psychology because in it, we are simply seeing the applicational material that God has already spoken to vividly in principle. Last fall in the middle of COVID, I started looking for uh, doctoral programs. I had a conversation with the head of the PsyD department at a Christian university. And in that conversation, he made this comment to me, and I paraphrase, that really the church is borrowing or stealing from psychology to give it language. And I was like, no, brother. God has spoken to these things, and you're just working out the applications in ways that are helpful for his people. But that is the grid of the day, if that makes sense to you. Over my own journey, I spent tons of time on the other side of the room. You can hear the snapshot of my story. And I would tell you that maybe one and a half of the counselors that I saw were really helpful to me because the one in particular was, had been a pastor who was biblically theologically grounded and went back to school and got an MA in marriage and family therapy. And so he sat in the room with all of it with me. Little known factoids in the counseling world. It is unethical for me, in the, even as a, let's say I operate local ABC Christian Counseling Center and you come in, it is an ethics violation for me to ask you something as simple as, may I pray for you? Now, if it was one of you all, you would say, sure, thank you. But technically, the Christian counselor, even in a Christian counseling center, is not allowed to ask that question. It is a misuse of power. Yesterday, I was sitting at lunch and I got an email, you know, like all of us, my leg vibrates. Sometimes there's something there and sometimes it's just because it vibrates anymore. I pulled my phone out and uh, the, there was an email from the, the platform our center uses for scheduling, billing, etc., notifying me of a new available continuing ed course. And I want to tell you what it said in principle. It was speaking to sexual brokenness, to kink, to BDSM and how to help people. Now, you and I would think how to help. They're saying how to help them be happy in the lifestyle that they've chosen and how to teach you as a, Christian, as a counselor to ap operate ethically by which we mean agree with, affirm, help flourish in things that are overtly destructive to the souls of people. That is the culture of counseling today. So there is a lot there. A gospel-centered framework is not afraid of these places. They are opportunities for you and me to sit down with wounded people and enter into the shame that they carry that is actually no different than the shame that I carry, that we all carry. So by framework then, I mean, how does this fit together? And again, I'm going to come from the box, just so you know, again, God is king. The heart, the mind of people is his province. There are definitely medical places. My own story, I am deeply grateful to the common grace of God for medication. I would have taken my own life earlier in my life, probably when I was 30 in the middle of depression, were it not for the gift of medication to me. So I am not arguing against these things. I am simply suggesting a grid through which God's people can begin to understand what they're looking at. So let's stop for a minute and ask, what are things we don't talk about a lot in church? 
I'm going to just throw some numbers at you. Some of you may go, I knew that. Some of you may go, you have to be kidding. Uh, Let's talk about porn just as an example of sexual brokenness. 40 million Americans, by, by their willingness to report it, look at porn regularly. 40 million. I'd like to tell you, by the way, porn usage today is a 50-50 proposition, male and female. Women are almost twice as likely, however, to act it out in the workplace. I don't know what that's about, but it, there it is. 35% of all downloads, all downloads, mobile, off your desktop, your laptop, are porn. One in five searches that people perform on their mobile devices are about porn and sexuality. Where porn is present, there is a 300% increase in the probability of infidelity in a marriage. Hold that. I just grabbed a category. Let me give you some more overt mental nervous categories. According to the National Institutes for Mental Health and the CDC, 31% of, this is from 20, this is from this month, 31% of Americans are reporting anxiety and, and or depression in the COVID world. 13% or more admit, so these are all subjective reporting, right? So it's people who have to admit it. Admit that their addiction has become deeper or they have started a new addiction during COVID. 11% of people identify serious health-related matters from stress in our culture right now. These numbers are double from a year ago. At our center called Hopewell Counseling Ministries, I would say that these numbers are spot on or underestimating the tsunami of brokenness that is coming upon us today. Then we can look at other boxes. Um, Just curiosity, how many of you are teaching elders? And then how many of you are ruling elders? Roughly half and half, okay. So we'll have a little fun for the moment. How many of the ruling elders have ever been aggravated with the teaching elder in your church? Show of hands, right? How many of the teaching elders have ever felt unsafe talking about stuff you struggle with with your ruling elders? So I'm just taking that as a little sample for a minute. The wages of sin is, we tend to think about that theologically as an end state. That if sin isn't dealt with, I will be permanently separated from God. I know that Jesus has died for me, and I have some level of communion with him this side of heaven. But I think in our anthropology, we don't think deeply enough. Because the wages of sin, we taste it horizontally. You guys just identified it. And we taste it internally. And it is rooted in of the buzzword of the day, shame. So of those of you who raise your hand, that aggravated question, I won't push into it because you might be sitting next to your pastor or your ruling elder, right? But knowing how to talk through the hurt things without us processing them as judgments of ourselves is brutally difficult, I think, for all of us. How many of you are married? Okay, good. Most all of us. How many of you find yourself, you would say, my spouse always understands me and I'm never insecure about bringing up a difficult thing in my marriage? No. You in the back, you have denial. Okay. 
Right, and so the biblical answer to that, as well as the data of marriage and family therapy, that's because of shame, okay? So I think people today are asked, we have two groups of people on the planet today in generic language. We have those who know Jesus and those who don't know Jesus. I think in our culture, those who don't know Jesus ask this question on a regular basis. You know, I'm willing to believe, will it make any difference if I do? It's a question of pain. My offices are full of believers. We do see non-believers, which always makes me smile because that just means that God has said, go over there so you can hear about me. They don't know that until a little bit of time passes generally. But believers say the same thing. I do believe. Why doesn't it make any difference? And I think that is a way I would describe how we do not actually presently understand the hope of Jesus as good news. So the church doesn't share her faith robustly because it's not good news. This is my friend Gary, you know, here sitting in front of me, and it's like, it's like I'm not, I don't know the Lord, and, and I just struggle with all kinds of guilt and shame, and then the light of heaven opens and I'm saved, and I've got to talk to my friends. So I go, Gary, brother, I used to be trapped in all kinds of guilt and shame like you. I've been rescued. Now I have Christian guilt and shame. You too can trade yours in. Right? Because there is something that we're not connecting under the waterline where profound and powerful hope of heaven is intended to connect with us. So now let's go there. You and I are created needy. Just sit there with me for a minute. You are created needy. So I'll use my friend Gary here. So Gary and I are sitting at a coffee shop. Maybe you're a friend of Gary's. And you walk into the shop, I don't know you, and he says, um, I'll pick on another name, Larry, Larry and Gary. I'm Mo. Um, Larry walks in and, and Gary says, hey man, sit down with us, and we're chatting for a few minutes, and I just, out of the blue, I look at my friend Larry, my brand new friend, and I go, hey Larry, you know you're needy, right? Okay, now just sit in that moment. How many of you have a visceral reaction to that idea of somebody calling you needy is not a good idea? Have some honesty for a moment? All right, let's dialogue here. Why is needy not okay? What do you think? It goes against our, our cultural, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, American ideal. Plus, there's the idea that as a Christian, you should have it all together. And, you know, if, if you don't, if you, if you need something, it's probably because of uh, failing of your faith. If you need something, in your, it's the failing of your faith. Because after all, if I believed Jesus well enough, I'd never have distress, right? I mean, as, as good Reformed people, we'd never say such a thing. We just might live it and transmit it. Do I see a hand back there? What do I? It shows weakness. That shows weakness. I'm not allowed to be weak. And yet God looks at Adam. Genesis 2.18. He looks at Adam, and this is before Eve. Sin has not come upon us. He has perfect, intimate relationship with God. And God says what? It is not good that the man should be alone. A little irony in the language. The Hebrew word for alone is pronounced bad. So I just want you to hold that. Bad, alone, alone, bad. It means to be separated or isolated. So God looks at Adam, who has a perfect relationship with him. 
And he says, that's going to sound like heresy in many circles, but God is looking at him and he says, son, you need something in addition to me. God created us needy. God created you and me needy for something in addition to him that is actually a mirror of him. You with me? So let me touch neediness and simple work ideas just for a second. I'm standing in front of you and I have a need. Ecclesiastes put it this way, it's given to a man, a person, to work hard and enjoy, the, and enjoy appreciate the fruit of his labor. I have a need. This is my work. I hope I'm helpful that there's fruit to this. You with me? That's needy. I'm a recovering people pleaser. Sometimes I relapse and every once in a while I recover. But as I sit in that, you're sitting in my office, let's say. I'm a person sitting with you. I hope you like me. Is there anything wrong with that? I need to be liked. I need to be accepted. Anybody not need that. But what we do with this is problematic, and that's where I'll spend more time this morning or this afternoon. What I want you to realize, though, is this, that perfect humanity is actually needy humanity. Perfect humanity is needy humanity. God put it together for Adam and Eve that they were to experience this as naked and without shame. Now, when I, tongue-in-cheek, I'm a recovering Yankee, you know, I, at a, you know, I'm doing premarital, I open the man's favorite verse, we should be naked, honey, a lot, and have no shame. Not exactly what God's speaking to, although Bill Cosby seemed to indicate, whoa, man, it could be. But what the picture of here is that we are intended to have relationship with him, relationship with ourselves, relationship with other that is unhidden, that is in which we are known and we know. We are vulnerable. We do not need to mask. We do not need to hide. And so when God says it's not good for you to be alone, wow, as Adam looks at the woman, and it is a picture of God's intention. Now, what woke up in Adam? He became aware of the neediness that God spoke to. He needed to be connected to another. Let me do that developmentally. My children are Maddie and Sam, 27 and 24 in age today, but I'll pick on my daughter. Maddie is born. She is terrified. Labor and delivery was a tough journey, and I ended up holding her first. And she's flailing and wailing, you know, because we start child abuse early, slap her bottom and go, hey, are you okay? And, right, and so we, so we enter life. But I'm holding her and she's flailing. Now, I'm the kind of dad, my wife's pregnant, and I traumatized my daughter in utero because I would sing to her in utero. And, you know, to this day, she's like, Dad, don't sing so loud. And um, that's a whole other subject. But I, they hand her to me. And I start humming, Jesus loves me. And I got tears. I love this girl. Who knew? And, but as I start to hum, she stops flailing. She is 10 minutes old and curls in. I am safe by, with someone who I know sees me and that I recognize. 
even though it's not memory she has actively at that point in time. A little bit of time goes by, somewhere between four and six weeks old, a child opens their eyes. What do they typically start to look for when they open their eyes? Our eyes. What are they doing? Do you see me? I see you. Do you see me? We're designed for that connectedness. One of the Greek words in the New Testament translated alternatively worship or prayer is prosopon. It means before the face. We see and he sees us. That connectedness is what we are intended for. So when we sit in these places, this of turmoil, pick your poison, this is what we are created for. That intimate, secure connectedness, one with the other. Now, I want to step past that for a minute and identify how we are actually all at war with our neediness. As soon as sin enters, we hear Adam's words. God says, Adam, where are you? And we all know this passage. It's not divine peekaboo. It's a little sidebar. When I was in seminary, I remember Dr. Currid, one of my uh, Old Testament Hebrew professors, would say that the entire Bible exists in seed form in Genesis 1, 2, 3. And I can remember going, uh-uh. But the more I looked, the more I'm like, okay, maybe he was onto something. Then he said something just obscene that we would all be able to read, write, and speak Hebrew in heaven. And I was like, I'm going to be mute. I'm done. But, but as we come to this idea of at war with neediness, God steps into the garden and he says to Adam, or Adam's response is profound. I was afraid because I was naked, or naked for you southerners, and so I hid myself. Now, I want to tell you something. This is profound this way. When I am defensive, anybody here ever defensive with your spouse? Anybody else have that spiritual gift? Okay. Or with dear friends or family members? You ever notice that you don't have to go, wait a minute, should I be defensive? We just can kind of get there, right? So Elizabeth, my wife, says something to me, or she says, Kron, we need to talk. And I'm like, what did I do? But as soon as I'm defensive, this is how my brain fires off. Difficult feeling, a corresponding belief that is embedded in me, attached to those feelings, and a behavior. Here, Adam, it's reactive, emotion, I'm afraid. It means I'm exposed, everything in me is open to God, and I am bad inside, and so he hid. The word hid shows up 30 times in the Old Testament, 25 times out of the fear of death. This, of course, is one of them, or its first usage. So I want you to hear something highly reactive is happening in Adam. At a relational level, all of his connectedness with God, self, and other was just shattered. And so he sits there tasting the aloneness of it all. And so he hides. Now you have to think about this. We move from Genesis 2.25 to Genesis 3.10. Alone, I'm sorry, from 2.18 to 3.10. Alone was not a good idea. But once sin enters, alone seems like a better idea. So sin using its friend, shame, its favorite tool, 
begins to have us taste the wage of sin, death, isolation, that crushes all of our souls. Does that make sense? You with me? So alone becomes good. We hid. I sometimes tongue-in-cheek as somebody's new in my office and I can tell they're vibrating like sitting in the room for the first time because in some way, shape, or form, you walk into a counselor's office and uh, it's like, okay, take all your clothes off and be vulnerable. It'll go really well for you. Everybody, and everybody gets nervous, so I'll pick on my friend Gary. So Gary comes into my office for the first time ever, and I can tell he's vibrating, and my Yankee tongue-in-cheekness will pop out at me from time to time, and I can say, hey, man, let me normalize this. We're all afraid right now. Brother, if you had to do one of two things in the next five minutes, or you were going to die, gotta, but you've got to pick one of these two things. I have ten people out in my lobby I gathered for you. You're going to know five of them, and you won't know five of them. First, cho- first choice that will keep you from death is you can walk out there and you have to strip emotionally absolutely butt naked. There is no darkness in your soul that you don't get to just share right in front of all of those people they can't probe and ask you about. Or, second option, it's gravelly outside so you can keep your shoes on. You, need to, you can go take a naked lap around the office park and come back in. Now, if we all get really honest, what are we going to do? We hold the door, I'll be back. So you think about that for a minute and go, why? And that is the cycle of our hiding. Because what shame and sin have done inside of us is it has left us in a place where we reactively have bought that hiddenness is life. Now, here's here's the language of 310. He had a diff, I'm gonna say this to you again. And this is how shame functions reactively inside of all of us. He was afraid, difficult feeling, had the corresponding thought or belief, I'm naked, I'm exposed, I'm bad, I'm going to hide. Feel, think, do. Now that's powerful and this is really important to you as you preach and as you talk to people over a cup of coffee. This cycle inside of you and me, reactivity, moves up to 30 times faster than a person can actually think. That's important for a minute, let me tell you why. We tend to want to come along to somebody struggling and we say, you need to think about that differently. Anybody here ever have a panic attack? I I have. A few people have. Anybody have being a little bit nervous or anxious, one of your gifts? Right, and somebody comes along and they just say, hey, don't be. That's a helpful moment, right? Or you know the truth is Jesus loves you so you don't need to be. I totally forgot that, thanks, I'll stop now, (laughs) right? It doesn't work that way. And this cycle, by the way, feel, think, do, reactive. If we plug your head into a PET scan when you're being defensive with your spouse, your friend, a coworker, somebody on your session, that's the order of operation your brain fires in. Difficult feeling fires off and we can watch your brain light up through your right brain, which processes your emotions. You get hijacked, and it can only mean you're gonna get hurt, you're you're gonna be vulnerable, you're gonna get rejected, you're not gonna be good enough, you're not gonna get understood. Whatever difficult belief is attached to that difficult feeling, and then you have a behavior. Because that's how it works. Now, if we go to trauma, I'm a trauma survivor. How many of you as pastors would say you have experienced trauma as a pastor, church-based trauma. You've been wounded in the church. Yeah. How many of you have, but you're afraid to raise your hand and tell us? Okay. Um, 
Trauma, church-based trauma, sexual abuse trauma, emotional abuse. This is how your brain fires, feel, think, do, every time. And the person who is triggered, so to speak, in the moment, doesn't have a lot of control over it. It's just kind of happening. It's happening so fast they can't slow it down. So hit pause with me for a minute. Let's go back to theology and psychology. I'm talking to the head of the PsyD department, and he tells me very directly, big Christian, well-respected program, that the church is borrowing from psychology. What I just showed you is cutting-edge neuroscience agrees with what God had Moses write down 3,000, 3,500 years ago. There is nothing new under the sun. However, what we can learn from the psychological sciences and neurosciences helps us understand how this works and how you and I, even as lay people, can walk with wounded people. But it requires you and me first to learn to say, Jesus, I have to learn to go here myself. It is painful. Let me give this to you differently um, as a picture I use frequently. So let me describe this to you. This, the squiggle across, you can think about that as kind of your cognitive emotional waterline. The, react, the reactivity you and I carry in life is underneath it. And it's all about wounded self and shame that we carry. Let's go back to being defensive again. Somebody says something difficult to you. Do, you, do anybody like, ever stop and go, can you give me a minute? I'm trying to decide if I should be reactive or not. Just, just give me a minute. I, I, I'm, I'm trying to figure out if I should do that. It doesn't work that way, does it? Uh, my wife and I were sitting with an old friend here last night, Shane's son. And I'm, I'm kind of at a little bit of a crossroads in my professional life of needing to narrow some things down. I can't do everything. And Shane, as a good brother and friend, was just saying, Kron, at some point, and I didn't want to hear it because I love the things I'm doing and I don't want, in a sense, to let them go because it feels like loss to me or failure. But is that actually what's happening? It's not. But there's a difficult feeling, and I learned a long time ago that my difficult feelings mean something's wrong with me, so I need to defend against that. Okay? Now I want to ask you a question. Let me hit pause again. Or I invite you to ask me questions more pointedly. I want to, I, my wife tells me, you've got to go slow because I live in this stuff. Did that make sense to you, what I just said to you? That this is what's happening? Okay. So the way this shame processes then is like this. I have a woundedness and shame, and it has voices. Like anybody here ever hear, kind of, we all hear voices in our head. Like we invite you over for dinner. Hey, part of me wants to, part of me doesn't. Or you just had a difficult conversation. You get in the car and it's like somebody else is talking to you. Why did you say that? Right? So we all hear voices in that sense because our mind is not actually unitary. That's a whole different subject. But in those voices, they're common threads. Anybody here have a voice inside of you that says something like, not good enough? Okay, um, somebody's upset with you, I can't get it right, right? If I can't contr get control of this, I'm gonna be destroyed, right? These are all voices, we can think of them as the thoughts that are attached to our difficult feelings. We don't wonder them, 
we hit a difficult feeling and they're just there inside of us. And so that woundedness and shame that we all carry because we're all trauma survivors, because this is what shame and sin have done to all of us, and then we come into the world and we experience it also. Little side note to you, the necessity of a Christian worldview is, is simple. If you start reading the research data of shame, they label it as intrinsic shame and extrinsic shame. And I've been reading in this area for a while now, so I haven't done like a thorough research thing, but I've read easily 100 studies, I think, at this point. And do you know that none of them can tell you why intrinsic shame? They keep talking about extrinsic shame. You struggle with shame because dad did this, mom did this, your friend did that, then that's real. But why did they do it? There is no answer in the data, in the research, for the intrinsic problem we carry. Where is there one? In Genesis. Because God knows, and this is a gift to us. The problem, however, again becomes, in our neediness, it points out the need to reveal ourselves, and then shame says you're gonna die if you go there and we shut down. So what happens then is we have fantasy. So I'm just gonna use sexual, sexual addiction for a minute. Now, have any of you ever talked to somebody that's struggling with pornography? Yeah, and I would tell you, by the way, you can look at the numbers. If you don't know it, you have. You just don't know it because they didn't tell you. And the data amongst evangelicals and, and, and clergy is virtually identical to the culture. Virtually identical, which is terrifying. But woundedness and shame, and we hit a fantasy. So let's say I'm a sex addict, a porn addict. My fantasy is not, if I don't see another naked woman, I'm going to die. The fantasy is not what she does with me or anything like that, or how she looks. The fantasy is actually when I'm with her, she is saying something to me that is running exactly opposite the voice of my woundedness and my shame under the waterline. She tells me I'm wanted. She tells me I'm powerful. I'm accepted. There's no reason for you to be hidden. They don't get it. And so I can now, the sexuality of it all, the biology, of course, stamps the activities in arousal. But the issue is not if I don't see another naked fill in the blank, I'm going to die. Or if it's gotten to the place it's being acted out serially, physically with another person. It's not if I don't have sex with, I'm going to die. Now, they're first likely to be processing it that way. But the issue is actually the voices inside of me that tell me I am worthless. I am unwanted. I am unlovable. I am too weak. I am too she or he, if you're a woman, or same-sex porn, you fill in the blank. The object speaks a direct affirmation against the voice of shame. Why don't you think about that with me? Okay, now I'm going to do a, add a little piece to this. So my, Gary and I are friends. You don't need to get up right now. But when I touch my friend Gary, because we're friends, this is biology for a minute. As soon as I touch him, particularly if I touch his skin, his body secretes dopamine. Because that's how secure attachment connection works. When you pick up your child when they're scared and you touch them, their body responds 
with a dopamine dump in, into them. And it brings pleasure and delight to them. When we think about addiction, you want to guess what pathway any addictive things operate through in your brain? Dopamine. Because we're chasing an attachment to tell me I'm okay without me having to risk anything. Let me take it out of sexual stuff. Alcohol. My father's been a recovering alcoholic since I was 18 years old. We can look at alcohol. He picks up the bottle and he has a fantasy. When I drink, I don't have to feel the pain and it tells me they don't get you, you're okay. There's chemistry, there can be genuine chemical addictiveness. I'm not talking about the chemistry, I'm trying to talk to you about how the mind works, the heart works. And God is speaking to this. So the fantasy is not about whatever the thing of use or misuse is, as the case may be. It is about how it speaks to the woundedness inside of me. So here then is how it works. There's a trigger. You know, somebody says, hey, can we talk? Or you're, that person keeps giving you that look at church or whatever it is. And we, the trigger is an emotional thing that starts to happen inside of us. We feel the discomfort, we feel anxious, we feel angry, and it starts. And we don't want to process our difficult feelings, so the rituals begin. We start, maybe we just start ruminating on what a pain in the rear end that person is. And we don't go, I know what I'm going to do. Because Jesus told me to, I'm going to avoid them. That's because, Jesus, you want me to do that, right? Or no, I'm going to talk to the other people around them. I mean, nobody here would ever do any of those, right? We've seen other elders do it, but just to keep moving. So we, we have an act out for a minute. And the act out can be benign in this sense that I was just joking about, or it can be devastatingly broken into sexual brokenness, drug usage, or whatever. But it always brings me back around to despair because I'm empty again. And then the fantasy starts over. And that is what I call the cycle of idolatry. Tim Keller has languages are self-salvation projects. If Elizabeth will just, then I can be okay. If my church is big enough or if my, if my, if my fill in the blank, right? then I can be okay inside. Because we're all carrying this. I want, to, I want you to hear that. This is what is actually our normalness. So let's go back to us together for a minute as, as elders and elders' families, whether you're TEs or REs. What would happen, what would change in your congregation if your session sat together and had permission to struggle and to actually talk about it with each other. The only way the leaves of hiding come off out from under the bush is when, by faith, Jesus, you count me right. I don't need to be right. I can come out of hiding and risk being present. You see, if I won't take my clothes off, I'm thinking like drop my leaves, not be hidden. That's the language of clothing I'm using. If I won't take my clothes off, my friend Gary can never see me. My wife will never see me. 
and I will always be alone somewhere inside wondering why don't they like me or see me but I'm actually hidden and into this right in the middle of Genesis what's the promise of Genesis 3 the Redeemer is coming Jesus is coming and as Jesus comes there's a restorative movement that happens in us that is now not just future as I begin to get that he sees me that he loves me, that I don't need to get it right anymore. All of a sudden, I begin to be free to peel my leaves off and not be hidden with my wife or my friends or my church. And I want you to stop there with me and go, can you identify how good news that would be? What would honestly, guys, talk to me for a minute? As you sit with your session, as your own personal world or your ministry, if your gut really bought, you don't need to get it right right now. What would change? What would change? The gospel would be vibrant, life-giving good news. That we are loved profoundly where we are and in such a way, he will never leave us there. That is good news. I tell my team, my counseling staff, we, every, every month we spend time together working back through how the gospel comes to us because I believe we can't help people go somewhere we're not willing to let Jesus go with us. I can't meet you in your own brokenness well while avoiding my own. In fact, I sometimes tongue-in-cheek think the only commandment I really keep consistently is love my neighbor as myself. Because Jesus comes and says, Kron, I want you to work at that. And I go, Lord, I'm good on that one. I hate my emotional life. I hate their emotional life. I'm loving them as myself. Right? Obviously not quite what the Savior intends. So how do we work with this? First thing I want you to hold is this. Think right plus do right equals destruction or death. Because it is the language of performance. A little more humor, you know. I'm, I grew up watching Star Trek. Anybody here watch Star Trek? How, good. How many of you are aware that Spock was the first Reformed theologian? Right? <laughs> the death of all things emotional and we will be well. Right? But think right plus do right is destruction. Because that's not how God wired us. Think about the pattern of promise with me for a minute. Fill in the blank. God speaks to you. He says, do not fear because... I am with you. Do not be anxious because, right? Do not fear because I won't forsake you. Do not fear. 350-ish times command promise. Most of my Christian life, I heard that taught this way. Pick on my friend Larry. You know, Larry, if you would just believe God's promise, you wouldn't be afraid anymore. What the heck is wrong with you, boy, right? Because that's how we do it. But let me unpack that differently. Any of you have children that went through night terrors? Okay, we did. You're, or more normalized, a child that's afraid in a thunderstorm. And remember that time you walked into their room and they were three years old and you said, hey, I told you you don't need to be afraid of thunder anymore because I'm here. Go back to sleep and walk back into your bedroom and everything was quiet in the house after that. Remember that moment? Didn't work that way for us. Well, let's again ask why, and this is, I'm actually doing exegesis with you. How is it 
that fear subsides in a child. Thunderstorm is parked over my house. My child is two years old, terrified. I go crawl in bed with my kid. I, you know, I snuggle with them, I sing with them, I pray, we talk. But they're wailing and flailing. Somewhere in there, 10 seconds later, 30 seconds, there's that moment where the little one's body just all of a sudden relaxes and they turn into you. Picture the moment. What just happened? They realized that their fear was pointing to the need to be connected to you and that you were actually there and their relationship to what they were afraid of just changed. Your difficult emotions are pointing in general to your need to be connected to others and to him. So that command promise rhythm of do not fear or don't be anxious isn't stop it, dadgummit. It's, hey, look at me, I'm right here. I have you. Your fear is pointing to your need to know that you are seen and known. That is what your difficult feelings are pointing to. Now let's go back to depression, anxiety, addiction, fill in the blank. I have had, as I said, six major depressions in my life. I have PTSD uh, from things that I grew up with. I, as I said, praise the Lord for pink pills. Um, actually, I take a white one now. Okay, so praise the Lord for white pills. Um, my, uh, one of my New Testament professors, um, Knox Chamblin, I don't know, did any of you go to RTS Jackson? Years gone by, Knox is with the Lord now. He was a C.S. Lewis scholar. I had him toward the end of his career. And he made this comment in class one day. He said, in my family, we say praise the Lord and pass the salt. Because his wife was profoundly bipolar. And when lithium was identified, she could sit still at the table and they had life together. Just a gift of God. But I want to sit in the moment and say difficult feelings. And we can go back to these places. Depression, let me forget chemistry for a minute. Depression is a dark isolation. You taste death and the terror of it. And it typically looks backward at things broken and affirms nothing will ever be okay. Anxiety does a, has a different move. It looks forward and anticipates destruction to come. What do they have in common? In the middle is a person who needs to be loved, to know they're not alone, that they have permission to have turmoil. You see, their turmoil, just like in Genesis, is simply pointing out their neediness for him and for others, which enables them to experientially know that they are seen. Does that make sense? So I want to sit in that with you for a minute and identify that there's something here for you and me to wrestle with in our ministries. If I, let me take the next piece of this. I'm simply Jesus, the present hope for a moment. When we look at him, we watch him do something that is powerful and profound. First thing I want to do is Gethsemane. You can read that. What's the first thing? That, well, I'll start with this way. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. I, I should have clipped a little more of the passage on. I'm sorry, now I've, I've got it. Taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Now stop with me. 
So the God-man has perfect faith, right? And he has turmoil enough on him that Matthew is simply observing it. So he can see the God-man of perfect faith being sorrowful and troubled. But Jesus does something here. And then he said to them, Jesus is now speaking, and look at the modifiers. My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here, watch with me. What did he just do colloquially? Guys, I need to not be alone. You're my best friends. Come and be with me. Now, Jesus was present in the first garden, wasn't he? Eden. And what did God say to Adam again? It is not good for you to be alone. So in the dark night of his soul here, Jesus models a gospel-centered life to us. Unmarked by sin and shame, he hears his difficult feelings, and he knows what they mean. They mean I need to be connected and not alone. And so he steps into what they actually mean. Now, did it eliminate his turmoil? No, because he knows what it's like to not be seen by people he needs because they actually go to sleep on him. But he's modeling this to us. So before, where I showed you feel, think, do, now we have a congruent place where Jesus owns his turmoil. But he knows what it means. It doesn't mean he's bad or he's worthless. It doesn't mean not good enough. He can't get it right. It means he knows what's coming and it's overwhelming. And so he knows it means don't be alone. And it strikes me profoundly that his first move was not prayer. He doesn't say, you guys hang out, I'm going to go pray. He says, come be with me. And then he talks to the Father. Congruent state. You and I are always in emotional states, feeling, thinking, and doing wound together, whether we know it or not. And Jesus is teaching us many things here, obviously. But for, your pur- for my purposes, he's identifying what the turmoil points out the deep need for. Not escape. Not the lifting of the darkness. But to know that he's not alone in the middle of it. And so he does something here that is powerful for you and me. Horizontally, he says, guys, be with me. And then he cries out, is there any other way? He doesn't spiritualize the moment. I don't want to do this. Any other way, Father? Bring that back practically. How does Jesus engage people? One of my favorite little stories in in Luke 8, 44 to 48, this is the longest version of the woman who's been bleeding. So you know the storyline, right? So she has been unclean, cast out. Hear the shame of that for, I forget, 11 years, she knows that if I can just touch him, I'll be clean. And I, in my mind's eye, I love story. I can picture her kind of navigating through the crowd, trying to get in striking distance of the Savior. And so she reaches out and touches him. And Jesus stops in the middle of the crowd. Someone touched me. I perceive that power has gone out from me. And I love the moment because the disciples are like, oh, Jesus, you're in a crowd. People are touching you. What are you talking about? I mean, you know, 
But he stops and he, and look at what Luke tells us. When the woman saw that she was not hidden. Now hold that thought. She is in a crowd. How does she know she's not hidden? Jesus has to be looking right at her. Saying, I see you. You see, she thought, just like you and me, if I can get this thing out of me, I'll, I'll get it right, I can fit back in and be acceptable. But the Savior knows, know what you need to know is you are seen and you are loved and you are accepted. It's not about the cleaning of the external thing. You read across the Gospels and how often does he do the complete non sequitur? He comes to the cripple at the pool of Bethesda, goes, do you want to get well? I mean, think about that guy for a minute. It's like, uh, my legs don't work? And Jesus is like, okay, fine, walk. But do you want to get well? What is he doing? He is entering the pain of their life and he's saying, I see you. And what happens? Life-altering freedom sweeps through them. You can go to the woman at the well. I don't know if you know this part of it, but in the Greek text, day, a little particle in John, it's only used of, of, God's, of Jesus making sovereign choices. Now, it was about midday. And so Jesus now sits down sovereignly in the blistering sun, waiting for her. And you know how the story unfolds. But she doesn't know she's loved until she stops to realize he sees me. And she doesn't realize he sees me until he names what's actually going on, but his gaze never changes. Let me use my friend Gary here for a minute. And this is practical peace, so stand right here, buddy. So I can look at Gary, let's say, and uh, put your arms across. I can tell my friend is really struggling today. And just picture this as somebody in your church, your spouse, whomever, right? And he knows he's struggling, and I know he's struggling. So I want to give him a gift. I want to tell him I see him, that he matters, that he's loved. But he, does, he hates his neediness. Right? Anybody here ever hate your neediness? Just to be clear. Okay, 12-step meeting. My name is Karan, and I hate my neediness. Next. Okay. So, but I try to love him, and, I, and so my affection just bounces off because he won't let it in. Right? Now, why won't he let it in? Because to let it in, he has to own where he really is. He can verbally acknowledge it. Transparency. Vulnerability changes everything. Open your, go ahead and open your arms. And now if Gary goes, brother, I'm struggling. Can I have a hug? Everything changes as I embrace my friend, right? Well, why? Because he received. He owned what he needed. Does that make sense to you? So he can acknowledge that I love him. The woman bleeding for a dozen years knows that Jesus is who he says he is but she thinks my best bet is just to touch him and remain hidden. But Jesus won't let her remain hidden. He looks at her and says, I see you. And you watch this again and again and again in the Gospels. You know what 80% of effective counseling, doesn't matter what your model is, comes down to? How the client experiences the relationship with the counselor. 80%. The other 20% matters profoundly, I assure you. But the gift God has granted to us as the church is to learn to see people and to risk being seen.
When I preach this sermon, if I preach it as I just did, but I won't let you touch me, what does my church learn? That the gospel changes nothing. It's an intellectual exercise. That Jesus may as well have been Spock. But I will tell you, guys, men, women, that if you will learn to say, it is my shame that keeps me hidden, risk going to a different place as the leadership, and begin to watch and engage how Jesus loved people, you will be on to something that is profound. I'm going to back up a step, apply it in one more place, and then do some question and answers with you. Like many of you all, I'm at a place in life, you know, we can't avoid critical race theory, racism. And I just want to make a suggestion to you. I am not a person of color. I am a white man as I say this. I grew up in a train wreck, though. I know what it is to be ostracized, to live with trauma, to be on my own, to put myself through school, to be an orphan, functionally speaking. We can look at the issues of race today and they are complicated in how they're working out. I'm just asking you to think gospel-centered with me for a minute. As soon as shame enters, what does Adam tell God the problem is? It's her. And what does Eve do? It's the serpent. Shame says I can't see it for myself, and so we immediately divide. It's been happening since the beginning. You can pick up Ephesians 2 the dividing wall. And what does Jesus, what does Paul say destroys the dividing wall? The gospel, Jesus. Jesus. But it is a place where shame evaporates. So I can sit down with my brother or my sister who is different and hear their story and not defend myself. Because it's not about right or wrong, careful, I'm not saying there's not right or wrong being done. It is about can I, because I am loved and seen and counted right by him, sit down with someone who is different and hear their story and how they have been wounded through the years and not minimize it just because I don't get it. I will tell you the same thing over years of practice or uh, uh, doing what I do in our counseling ministry of having a dozen or so men over the years present in my office struggling with same-sex attraction for years. They're all married now to women. But the dominant paradigm of the day says, especially from the church, it's an either-or proposition. And I want to tell you that's not who our, our Savior is. You either remain celibate or you go sin. I am created to be connected. I can learn to be attracted. Now, all of those guys would tell you that if they were at the beach um, and the lovely, young, scantily clad couple walks by them, they're much more likely to look at the, one, to, at the man. But they love their spouse and they have learned attraction and connection. I'm not saying I'm magical. I'm saying that Jesus has created these places. But it requires us to be willing to stop 
to put down our rightness, our armor. Let him be the right one and enter into the broken places. I would have taken my life probably in my mid-twenties. I suspect my path would have been sexual addiction and then destruction. Were it not for Jesus and some men he put in my life that adopted me. I heard Rufus talk about a man who knelt by him and whispered in his ear. Jesus touched lepers. Jesus engaged the unclean. And I don't think he thought of them that way for a minute. He saw wounded people marked by sin enwrapped with shame. And when Jesus touched them, they knew they were seen. And the darkness of shame was shattered in their lives. And the gospel, Jesus, became the present, life-altering good news. As the King of Heaven says, I see you. God, you can give this to people. The grid I've laid out simply here today with you is how God made us. So I really want to challenge you to begin to say, Lord, help me understand my own emotional world. Father, will you help me own that you created me needy to not be at war with my neediness? Jesus, I need you. Jesus, I need my wife. I need my friends. You learn to go there, and you will learn to answer the question of pain. Will it make a difference if I believe? Yes and amen. Will it heal the turmoil and make it disappear? Absolutely not. But the most devastating place is the shattering aloneness within which we live. Shame affects us bodily. When shame is activated in us, the brain function changes even. I'm an embodied soul. We can watch it if your head is plugged in to a PET scan. The brain actually shuts down pathways. And you ever had the, you, you know what shame is like when suddenly you're hit with it. You kind of back up inside. It's actually happening physically in your brain. And into that place, again, we watch the Savior enter. But people who are there think they have to get it right. Your gift and mine from him is I can embrace my neediness and step into that broken place. I'll hit stop right there. Threw a lot at you. Thoughts, questions, comments? My wife's up front. She says I'm always clear, so... <laughs> Great question. 
knowing the love of Jesus, ground of my sanctification, how do I not let that become justification for my sin when I'm struggling, not feeling well? Okay? Right. Part of it, that's a great question, it's complicated, but let me try to touch it with you briefly. If I operate my sanctification detached from the surety of the love of Jesus who already counts me right, I am not going to work out my sanctification. I'm going to work out a misuse of the law where I'm going to be trying to get it right all the time. Does that make sense? And it is much easier to preach the law than to declare the gospel in broken places. First part. Next part, as one who has been depressed. My wife would tell you, when my wheels came off, uh, 94, 96, so 25 years ago, I was actually, I was the campus director with Campus Crusade at Cornell. Our ministry was exploding. We'd opened another campus nearby. We were seeing kids come to Christ. We'd, we'd had a campus event where we brought a Christian philosopher and we had a thousand people come to it. I would take the promises of the gospel I was teaching through Galatians and go home and annihilate myself for my inability to believe them well enough. Because, because depression is not just about believing better. When I, I use touch again, when I touch my friend Gary, he feels comfort inside of him. The chemistry of that for a minute is if you think of my arms as neurons, a message comes and it, has to, and it goes through a little puddle of neurotransmitters and the brain goes, that feels good, I love my friend Kron, right? When depression is really present, the chemistry in the middle is screwed up and the message does not carry. Then I had some, my pastor back in the day meant really well, but he would tell me to go believe better. And I was thinking, should I kill myself, right? Because that's what depression does. It's broken. If I pulled up my pant leg, I have a destroyed knee. When I was 18 years old, I was running at night, put my foot in a hole, tore my leg literally in half. So if you're looking at my, I was laying like this, my foot was over there. Um, so I did a total knee when I was 50. So if I pull up my pant leg, you can see my inseam, right? Whatever it was, 78 staples or something. I'm at your house, we're neighbors, you go, hey, Kron, um, crap, I dropped my hammer, it's behind the bush, you mind crawling under there and get it while you're up on the ladder? I go, I don't crawl, can't get it. But you can look at the scar and go, Kron's not being stubborn, he doesn't crawl, there it is. The stuff we're talking about, you don't see it on the face. But if you were to read scans, different kinds of brain scans, you can see it in the, in the scan. I was sitting doing some neurofeedback recently, and it measures brain waves. And it was just an intake appointment, and the woman who was doing it with me, she's been doing it for 20 years, I had the follow-up appointment. She says, wow, so you've had PTSD, you've struggled with depression and anxiety, and I'm like, well, yes, uh, and because she could see it in the data, how the brain was actually functioning. Now, I want to be careful. I'm not, I'm not a blamer on the brain, right? That can heal and change. You're, right now, you're stuck in something, and it's like feel, think, do. It's just like this. But the hardware is in there for all of us, totally different circuitry options where we, by, we change by corrective experience and we begin to learn that those difficult feelings don't mean 
what we internalize that they mean. By corrective experience, not by just telling somebody that's not true. You have to go to the, where the pain is. It's okay to feel this dark, wounded stuff. And in that, they experience being seen, known, and loved, and the difficult feeling that fires off begins to have a different message wired to it. But it's very longitudinal. It takes time. To answer this question, talk about how we relate differently to sin. Say again. How we relate differently to sin doesn't become a right wrong. Got you. Um, my wife has asked me to clarify how we relate to sin. Sin, on the one hand, is right wrong. Either I honor God or I didn't honor God. Okay? However, when I enter into the growth and change process, if I'm only asking the right wrong question, I'm missing the point because what is the heart of all sin? It's unbelief. If you go home and read the Minor Prophets and think, what is God angry about? Certainly you can look at the idolatry, the adultery, and everything else, but you pay attention to the thread, and it's because they're not believing him to be who he says he is, and therefore who they are, as he has declared to them. And so learning that experiential place, that my acting out of sin, fill in the blank, my selfishness, whatever it is, is a is a reflection of actually a deeper heart problem wherein my heart does not want to know or believe that he sees me and loves me in this way. I am afraid to crawl out from under that bush. So if I'm always managing sin, I often don't do the heart work. And imagine if Jesus went through the, if, pick up your gospels and if Jesus was a sin manager, what would the gospel writers record? Sin, 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 comma, semicolon, sin, 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 right? It's not that he's not calling them on it, but the fundamental place that is broken, sin makes sense from. The sin, the broken behaviors are pointing out something that is a deeper need in general. I'm not saying we don't talk about sexual immorality, that we don't talk about other kinds of behavior problems. I'm suggesting we need to go where Jesus goes and see people so that they experientially hear him. And then I don't want or need those things the same way anymore. Oh, they do. Okay. Um, if people need to go, I didn't know the start of business again. Is it 1.30? Change that time. Let me just pray, and then I'll be available. Um, if you are interested, I'm going to run a cohort. Um, if you want to do some work on this over six months, you can send me an email. I've got some business cards up here if you want to grab one. Father God, I thank you that you are big and kind, that Jesus, as we can turn the pages of the Gospels, we see you see people that you saw us. And that the liberty of the Gospel brings life-altering hope now. Pray for these guys as I pray for me and my own. Will you help us, Holy Spirit, know that in a way that shakes the darkness from our soul, makes the present hope of the gospel the joyous good news that changes everything that it actually is. Holy Spirit, use us to declare the goodness of our King. In his name, amen. Amen. Thanks, guys. Thanks.